With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey mom, first things first, thank you. It's my one year anniversary of my decision to say, yes, I need help, and yes, I choose me. And that's the miracle. I'm lucky that the strongest person I know is my own mother. Love you, Mom. Maxwell. Be that strong person who makes the difference. If your loved one is struggling with drugs and alcohol, reach out to Karen for a different kind of addiction treatment. Visit caron.org slash lost. What is the trade that cost Warren Buffett the most amount of money ever? And it's a big number. And it's very interesting to study this trade, to break it down, to understand how Warren Buffett's style has changed over time. And I've written a book about Warren Buffett. It's called Trade Like Warren Buffett. I do think Warren Buffett is the best investor of all time. I follow everything he does. Whether you agree with him or not on different issues or different stocks, doesn't matter. The guy has been investing for over 70 years. He's been obsessed with it for 70 years, seven days a week. And it's really good to learn his lessons. Trung Fan, who's been on the podcast before, he has broken down completely from beginning to end Warren Buffett's worst trade ever. And Trung and I talk about it. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Trunk fan, welcome back to the podcast to talk about Warren Buffett. Yes, number three. Yeah, yeah, number three. And Warren Buffett being one of my favorite topics, the best investor ever. I wrote a book that no one ever remembers anymore. It's called Trade Like Warren Buffett. It's the worst <laughs> cover in the world. Your newsletter that you sent out about Buffett reminded me a little of what I write about in my book, because the book's titled Trade Like. Like Warren Buffett used to be much more of a seller of stocks than people realize. He wasn't a buy and hold forever kind of guy, particularly in the 60s when you discuss yeah. his first investment in Disney. So what got you interested in this? 92nd birthday. Uh, you know how it is with his birthday, right? Every year it's just like, here's 92 things Buffett said for his 92nd birthday. Last year was 91 things he said for his 91st birthday. And uh, yeah. I actually hadn't heard much about the Disney trade. I, I knew he had owned Disney, but... Uh, I started just Googling around it, come up uh, during these kind of celebrations. It's like, oh, you know, here, everybody's talking about all the, the wins he has. What about the misses? And uh, I'm like, oh, Disney. And then I looked at him, like, he owned 5% of Disney and he bought it for $4 million in 1966. This is wild. So the story is, uh, I don't know how familiar the audience might be with this story because this is much less uh, popular and uh, mind shared than uh, many of his other great trades. Uh, obviously, because this seems like more of an L. But in 1966, in the Buffett Partnership, so this is before a transition to Berkshire Hathaway, Buffett Partnership, to your knowledge, that's more of a friend and family's kind of vehicle where he just raised from his friends and family? Yeah, I mean, it it started off as a bunch of individual partnerships. Okay. Like he'd have his next door neighbor and he would just invest for that neighbor. And at the same time, he'd invest for other people in different accounts. But then he combined them all together in the early 60s into essentially a hedge fund structure where... He took a percent after a certain point. Um, I forget the exact fee structure, but after a certain point of profits, he would take something like 
15 or 20% of the profits. I forget exact fee structure, but he would take a percentage of the profits after the profits hit a certain point. And this is really how he made his first million dollars was off these fee structures like that. And this is the period, as you describe in your book. Uh, so I, I actually haven't read that book, but you, you sent it to me and I read the reviews of it. And, uh, and, 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 and the, I guess your book describing this period in the sixties where he's basically running essentially this hedge fund, right? Yeah. It was, it was before Berkshire Hathaway, where he started publicizing with his letters, every one of his investments, they weren't really so public then what he was doing. Right. And he would write individual letters to investors, which, which I did get a hold of. And that's how I wrote the book, but it was really fascinating to see his kind of progress as an investor. Cause he, that was where he made his biggest leap intellectually, I think, as an investor. Okay. So I'd love for you to tease that part out after uh, I just finished on the Disney thing. So the Disney investment is obviously so interesting because it's one that's lasted since 66 until now. And, and it's now it's a $200 billion company, massive mind share in the public. But at the time when he invested, and this isn't adjusted for inflation, but just to give a scale, it was $80 million market cap was his investment, right? What I found so interesting about the story is he actually went to see Walt Disney. So Warren Buffett was 35 I years old. I didn't know old. that. I didn't know that until I read your newsletter. Yeah, so Warren Buffett was recounting this story of visiting Walt Disney. So he, he went to Notre Dame's MBA school in 1991 and was kind of going through his old trades. And somebody asked him about Disney. He's like, yeah, I went to go see Walt Disney. And uh, Walt Disney had no idea who I was. Walt Disney had no reason to know who he was, right? Just ran this small hedge fund out of Omaha. Uh, but he visited Walt Disney and Walt was apparently in this meeting extremely gregarious and uh, explained to him his kind of like, you know, that famous like Walt Disney business model chart. He was like explaining all those things. And um, he basically uh, recalls that Walt was like, yeah, we have all these assets, including these films like Fantasia, Snow White, uh, 200 other like classic films on our books. Those assets have a value of $0. Like there was no idea of the intellectual property that would continue forward as a, a, a as a stock analysis. So Buffett's like, wait a second, you're telling me that all these movies you have, all this IP is worth zero on your books. So that to him blew his mind. And uh, his line was basically, um, the IP that Disney has is like an oil well that replenishes oil like every seven years because the next generation of kids will just ask their parents to go watch Mary Poppins or Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. So that to him was already worth more than the 80 million market cap. I mean, that's fascinating if you think about it because A, I'm wondering what their total assets were at that time. Was it, was it 80 million and Buffett thought he was buying at a discount to the total assets? And then you have this added benefit of Mary Poppins and Sleeping Beauty and all that, that generate ongoing money. Also nowadays, movie studios are more like a hit factory where they don't really, the long tail isn't as big because there's so much competition for content. I mean, now you have movies made by Netflix, Amazon, Apple, uh, all the studios in the indies and so on. Whereas Disney was the only player for like kids animated movies at that time. Exactly. So the, the fact that the, the market wasn't really considering that IP like a, a real asset. So that blew Buffett away. And to, to your question, it's like, did they have like 80 million of assets on the book? Well, they just built the Pirates of the Caribbean rides in like 1965. And that cost $17 million. 
And so Buffett joked uh, at, at a later uh, general meeting in the 90s that uh, he couldn't believe that he found a company trading for five times theme theme park ride because that's it's like $80 million company. Pirates of the Caribbean cost $17 million. And then he did the math on the theme park uh, in 65. It had, it had seven, no, 11 million visitors to Disneyland paying about $7 each. So just the revenue from Disneyland box office ticket was the same as $80 million. He's like, I'm getting everything for free and Walt Disney. And he's like, this is like the greatest deal ever. That's interesting because so, and the reason why that's important is like this period in Buffett's investment life was divided into two parts. One is what he called cigar butt stocks. And that was really from his mentor, Ben Graham, who wrote, um, you know, the classic text, The Intelligent Investor. He also wrote classic text, Security Analysis. And Buffett had interned for him in the early 50s. It also studied with him at Columbia University. And the only reason Buffett didn't continue working for Ben Graham is Ben Graham was one of the few Jewish firms on Wall Street. And because many of the other firms wouldn't hire Jews, Ben Graham would only hire Jews. So, so even though Buffett was such a great employee for him, he couldn't hire Buffett full time, so so Buffett moved back to Omaha and started essentially his his Buffett partnerships. I did not know that. That is that is some like uh, uh, sliding door history, right? Like how different it could have been. But you know, Ben Graham, he grew up in the as an investor in the depression, where so many stocks traded below their liquidation value. Like if you have a hundred dollars in your wallet, but you could buy it for eighty dollars, of course you would buy it for eighty dollars, and those were the only stocks that Buffett will look at, particularly in the 50s and the very early 60s. And he would he would go through thousands of uh, uh, earnings reports. He would find companies that were worth $100, but you could buy for $80, you know, metaphorically. And he would literally, you know, a lot of these companies wouldn't trade very well on the stock exchange. They had no liquidity. So he would go to those towns where the companies were based and put up signs and say, if you have shares of this company, I'm in this hotel, please sell them to me. And that's how he really made, you know, his first profits from his hedge fund is only going for those types of stocks. But then in 1962, when he started hanging out with Charlie Munger, he realized uh, there was some value to a brand. So like American Express was going through a big scandal and Buffett realized their brand was had value, not just the cash they had in the bank or their liquidate, you know, what their assets would be if they liquidated, but their brand had value too. And this was Charlie Munger's influence on him. So he started getting a lot more involved in companies like American Express where it, there was sort of this unquantifiable brand value. And so I was just curious with Disney, if he was looking at brand or assets, but it sounds like he's looking at a little bit of mixture, like that the brand of Mary Poppins, which had just come out in 1965, was going to be this ongoing source of cash flow because it was so strong. Oh, that's that's exactly right. And uh, I, I did not know about that Charlie Munger influence either. So this is great. I'm learning so much about this early 60s Buffett. And it makes a lot of sense, right? Because he did come from the, uh, the, 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 the Graham School of Value Investing. And I don't want to bury the lead here. Like the, the purpose of why I wrote the Disney articles, because I think this is his biggest stock miss. And I should have said that at the very top. And we can discuss some of his other misses over the decades. But the reason why I think it's the biggest miss is we just kind of talked about it. He had identified, the, his thesis on this was, okay, the IP, extremely valuable, 
will keep renewing every seven years. And the theme park, this real life physical asset, extremely valuable. And he'd spoken to Walt Disney. Like he understood the long-term thesis for Disney. And then a year later, he sold for, I mean, 50% gain, right? So invested 4 million, sold it for 6 million, but a year later. And uh, well, I'd like to ask you this was, is, so obviously he's famously said, my favorite holding period is forever. But when did he actually transition to that type of investor? Because I, can't, I don't think it's fair for me to knock 1966 Warren Buffett uh, uh, for, for you know, selling at a 50% gain a year later when he probably wasn't that type of individual that was like, I'm just going to hold forever. Like, when did that transition happen? Yeah, I mean, and that transition wasn't then. Like, he, he again, with, with these cigar butt stocks, if they became valued more than their liquidation value, he would be more interested in selling because that was his his style. Uh, and and also he was managing other people's money, so he was a, a, a little more sensitive to their risks. But I would say that started happening around the 80s because he started to get so big. He put it this way. There's two scenarios. One is he's telling the truth and one is he's lying when he says his, his, hold, his favorite holding period is forever. The way he might be lying or at least being a little misrepresenting is because he wants your holding period to be forever because he's so big, he can't move out of a stock in a day. Like we all, we're more nimble than him. We have he advantages He needs the permanent him. capital, right? He needs you to believe in him for, uh, and that kind of permanent capital mindset is like, we're just going to trust you with this. Right. Otherwise, they'll all, everybody will rush out of a stock before he gets a chance to rush out of a stock. So he's so big, he can't like move in and out of a stock. I mean, he invests hundreds of billions of dollars now. But I would say in general, that's a true statement for him right now. Like he'd rather not sell anything. If, if, if something's, another statement that he makes that I like is that if a company is going to be around 20 years from now, it's probably a good investment now. So with that in mind, he, he every good company is always a good investment and he'd rather stick in the good investments because there's, there's few places for him to put that much money. But I would say it wasn't until the eighties that he started really feeling that way. And by the way, he had a personal portfolio that he would manage up until the early 00s where he was buying and selling the cigar butt stock style, the Ben Graham style, all the way up until the early 00s, and then he stopped doing that. But just out of his, because he never sold a single share of Berkshire Hathaway stock. So just out of his personal money, he built that up to $100 million or more, Whoa. You know, just <laughs> trading these cigar butt stocks whenever they would appear. And he was definitely a, a, an active trader of those. But for, for Berkshire Hathaway, he's definitely buy and sell forever. The other thing is I just want to mention is that he was also winding down at some point his Buffett partnerships. So he they stopped, I think in 1969 was the end of them or maybe 1968. I forget the exact year. That's when they acquired uh, Berkshire Hathaway as the textile manufacturer, right? And then just came holding company. Yeah. So, so what happened was is that First, it's funny about Berkshire Hathaway. So whenever Berkshire Hathaway was trading below its liquidation value, he would buy up shares and then he would say to the CEO, listen, you should do a stock buyback at X, you know, at a certain price. So he'd buy up shares at $6 and he would say to the CEO, listen, it's worth $7. You should do a, a share buyback. And the CEO would usually say, yeah, sure, you're right. And then there was one time the CEO said, yeah, you know, I don't think I'm going to do that. I think it, I'm going to buy back at five. And Buffett had bought at six. I'm, I'm making up the numbers a little, but they're sort of correct. And Buffett's like, nah, I, you need to buy them back at seven or eight. And the CEO's like, nah, not this time, Warren. And so Warren Buffett bought up 51% of the company, fired the CEO, and became the CEO and took over Berkshire Hathaway. And so 
that's a, a, a little known fact about how he took control of Berkshire Hathaway. And then he thought a recession was going to come in the seventies, which it did. And so he got rid of his partnerships and gave everybody the choice, either go with some friends of mine who are, who are good value investors, uh, or stick with me and become shareholders of Berkshire Hathaway. And so he, he shut down all the Buffett partnerships. So it could be related to that too, that he didn't really hold any of his holdings into Berkshire Hathaway, as far as I know, from, you know, then he started reinvesting and, and building up Berkshire Hathaway. Right. That's a very fair point. And I kind of hinged the entire uh, argument, uh, it could be flimsy, on the fact that he later said that selling was a huge mistake, as in maybe he felt that there was a way that, uh, obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I'm wondering if he's like, oh, there could have been a world where I you know, kept buying it or reacquired it uh, under $200 million market cap. But the other thing about that period, which is, uh, to your point, another reason he might have also sold is Walt Disney died in 1966. So... If he's talking ah. about the architect of this business model, but the hedge I have with that is that he knew how valuable that IP was, and uh, and the theme park. It, it, I, I feel like at that point it was kind of like a a machine. Although the Disney kind of films in the seventies were awful, so maybe maybe he was uh, making the right move. Um, but that kind of brings us to the next part, right? And you mentioned American Express. So he bought and sold American Express as part of Buffett Partnership. I think he uh, did 5X on that over five years. I don't, you probably know the numbers better than I do. Yeah, some huge amount. I mean, definitely that was the biggest source of gains for his funds at that point. Right. And then, so what's interesting about Amex is he bought back in in the early 90s, right? So there was like this parallel world where we're looking in the 60s where there's these two, uh, well, today they're considered blue chips, Amex and Disney. Uh, Buffett owned both of them in the 60s, sold out of both positions, but then rebuilt uh, Amex intentionally in the early 90s. So he's rebuilding Amex, and the Disney thesis is still sitting there. Uh, and Disney's having a great run in the early 90s. They just did Lion King, Aladdin. This is when Eisner was crushing it uh, before uh, kind of a, a bit of his downfall. But uh, Buffett comes into 3.6% of Disney uh, in 1996, when Disney acquires Capital Cities uh, slash ABC, um, the ABC network, but mainly now they own ESPN, which is the big thing. Wait, wait, so wait! Gets, what, what year did uh, what year did Disney buy uh, ABC? Uh, what year did Disney? So Capital Cities acquired ABC, uh, uh, merged with ABC in 1985, and Buffett helped finance that. So he right. was the largest shareholders in Capital Cities slash ABC. And just some context there, so. Buffett really loved this one guy, Frank Murphy, who uh, uh, was, he started off owning like a TV station in, I think it was in New York. And then he bought a bunch of radio stations and he just became a very good acquirer and operator of media properties. And then for whatever reason, in 1985, ABC was having some problems. Capital Cities was able to buy ABC. And I guess Buffett went in full force into Cap Cities. And that was his big that was his big play like that. And then Disney acquired Cap Cities slash ABC slash ESPN in 1995 or 1996. Yeah, the deal closed in 96. And uh, the other part of this deal that I loved and I wrote about it in the article was that it kind of came together because of Buffett, just completely randomly. He was hanging out at the, uh, the Sun Valley uh, Idaho co uh, Media Conference in, in Idaho uh, have you ever been to Sun Valley? Uh, no, I, I, I never I, have. I, I wanted to go one year <laughs> and I wasn't invited. I pushed for uh, I it, but it didn't happen. Yeah. So uh, Buffett uh, is kind of walking around Sun Valley. He's about to go golf with uh, uh, Murphy, uh, who you just uh, uh, talked about, the CEO of uh, Capital Cities. He bumps into Michael Eisner. 
a CEO of Disney. And then they just start talking shop. And, and Buff is like, hey, I'm about to go see Murph. Uh, we're going to go hit the links. Do you just want to go chat? And so the three of them just, because they bumped into each other, they had already floated the idea of a merger acquisition over the years, but it just so happened this was the ultimate catalyst that led to the 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 the, the nineteen ninety six nineteen billion dollar Disney acquisition of Capital Cities, which at the time was either the second or third largest MMA deal in U.S. history. Uh, number one was the uh, Nabisco, uh, whatever the Barbarian of the Gates deal was, and um, the, the cigarette deal. But uh, so he, I just love that little anecdote that he kind of had the part in making this deal happen and then walks away with 3.6% of Disney because he was Capital City's largest shareholder. And he held it for more or less five years. And then in my mind, I'm like, oh, here he is getting, he gets another bite at the apple, but within five years, he sells the entire Disney position. And the long-term thesis for Disney, again, hadn't really changed. It was like IP and theme park. And in the middle, in the 30 years since his first ownership of Disney, they had gone way more IP and then he still ditched it. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period. And I loved it. I I became a really good guest of Airbnbs. And I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house... I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. 
this is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter, particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of en Entertainment at NBC or whatever? So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. I think Buffett gets nervous whenever a story starts to fall apart. So when Michael Eisner was like going heavily into internet properties, like Buffett really hated the internet in the nineties, but Eisner was going like head first into internet stuff. Then Buffett made, then Eisner, um, made, uh, uh, Michael Ovitz, the, the president of the company and Buffett didn't like that, but Buffett really loved Bob Iger who was running ABC and was originally a cap cities guy. And now Bob Iger is the CEO of Disney, or he was the CEO of Disney. I think he just left, or I, I forget. But uh, Buffett loved Bob Iger. If he knew Bob Iger was eventually going to run Disney, he probably never would have sold. But I think he lost complete faith in Michael Eisner. Well, that, uh, you nailed, I think, the transition there because it was Iger who really became Mr. IP, right? Uh, Pixar, Marvel, Fox, yeah. all these acquisitions were under Iger. Um, and and to your point, Michael Eisner, oh no, sorry, under Iger. So Eisner did two things in the late 90s in, in addition to the internet. So Buffett hated internet. They bought InfoSeek, Disney did. So Buffett was probably like, ah, that's not my favorite acquisition. Yeah. He spent 1.7 billion on InfoSeek, the, um, the search uh, uh, portal. And then uh, you mentioned Michael Ovitz. Uh, but the other two things that were interesting, and it goes back to Buffett's thesis, was the theme parks were a disaster. So I was not old enough to remember this, so I'd love to pass the baton to you, not to suggest you're much older than me. But uh -huh. Euro Disney uh, launched in 1992 in Paris. Complete disaster. Yeah, it was a total failure. And same with Asia. Do you Asia. remember that? Like what, were, yeah. like, what was What were people saying at the time? It, they were saying it was empty. It opened up and here it cost billions and billions of dollars to make and it was empty. So there was real questions about Disney's viability as a company at that time. Yep. Like, well, it's uh, interesting, the thing about uh, the uh, the Paris one, and I love your thoughts on this, is so I've been to Tokyo, uh, uh, Disney Tokyo, and it's amazing. And that makes sense though because the local Japanese population, they, they kind of love going into these uh, theme parks and uh, different uh, cartoony, uh, uh, Hello Kitty's huge in, in Japan too. But um the Paris one, uh, you said, you mentioned they spent billions of dollars to build like six massive hotels on the property, but you're competing with the number one tourist city in the world that has the Louvre and the Eiffel Tower like right there, right? So nobody's going to spend a week in a hotel inside Disney Paris. They're going to probably just spend a day there max as a site. So that was, I think, the huge miscalculation. Yeah, and Buffett always says, his biggest mistakes are the things he didn't do. And like, obviously he should have kept holding on to Disney. And again, if, I think if the, if the bridge was, was Bob Iger, he would have done it. Like if he knew Bob Iger was going to be the successor to Eisner, he would have stayed in. Cause he, 
you know, Frank Murphy, he trusted Frank Murphy so much. Frank Murphy became a board member until he died of, of Berkshire Hathaway. So Buffett really sticks with his partners and Frank Murphy he, at Capital Cities slash ABC, he really liked. Uh, Michael Eisner, maybe not as much, particularly in Eisner's later days. And, uh, you know, and again, the, the this reminds me of Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola, Buffett always loved it as a company, but he wouldn't buy into it because they started a clothing company. They started investing in movie. I think they own Columbia Pictures, so they started investing in movies. The story was not consistent, and the stock started to fall apart. And it was only then that he took a major stake in Coca-Cola because then it started to trade below what he thought was his, its asset plus brand value because the brand had diluted so much. And, uh, you know, Disney Disney in the late 90s would not have been a great Buffett story. Yeah, could you explain more about his interest with uh, Iger? Like, how what was Iger's reputation at ABC and Capital Cities in the 90s? Uh, it was great because, uh, again, he... Again, the whole Frank Murphy school of thought was very similar to Buffett's, which is that buy properties really cheap. I mean, they bought ESPN. I think you mentioned in your newsletter, they bought ESPN for something like $188 million. And this is like now a probably a $20 billion property. And uh, Iger and Murphy always operated really well, cut costs, uh, uh, bought things cheap. So it was very much in Buffett's style of thinking. And so he was he was very confident owning Cap Cities forever. And of course, he had a they pay Disney paid a nice premium for it. Buffett ended up very, you know, doing very well and you know made a lot of money. But uh again, Iger was sort of a, an intellectual descendant of Frank Murphy, who was very similar to Buffett in terms of his thinking about how to acquire and operate things. And and Iger uh, you know, ran ABC, the television channel. So, you know, he he knew, you know, Iger was from the Cap City side. The more I'm like kind of talking with you through the two Disney, uh, the transactions he had, and the more you're giving the context, it, it makes a lot more sense now why he doesn't own 8.6% of Disney, right? Which is also, I, I totally forgot to mention, is like if he had, the, between these two deals, the 8.6%, totally hypothetical, if he had held on to those two stakes, would be worth $18 billion, which would be the sixth largest Berkshire position. I did a really crude uh, equal-weighted analysis, but that's like 34 times uh, the initial investment, uh, which uh, is comparable to, I mean, better than Coca-Cola and American Express, but not time-weighted. Uh, Coca-Cola, he invested at a cost basis of $1.3 billion. That's a $25 billion position now, so 19 times. Amex, the one that you mentioned, uh, when he re-went in in the early 90s, he now owns 20% of Amex, which is mind-boggling. Uh, cost basis, about $1.3 billion, and that's worth $23 billion. So, like, that's how good the Coca-Cola full deal would have been in a totally hypothetical world. Yeah. And, and like, I guess it's to his point too, that he doesn't mind buying late, like, like American express, he owned it in 1962 and eventually sold it, but he's able to buy back later because the company still keeps growing and he knows it's going to be around 20 years from now. I think another one where he did that was Geico. He was in and out of Geico a bunch of times until finally Berkshire Hathaway essentially bought Geico, the whole, the whole company. And Geico was a company he liked even as a little kid. Like he holds on to these, his interests for a long time. Like when he was a teenager, I think it was, he visited Geico headquarters like on a holiday and kept knocking on the windows until someone answered. And it was the CFO of the company who later became CEO. 
And he learned everything about the insurance business from this guy that day. And I mean, here's an interesting thing about Buffett. Buffett started out running these hedge fund-like structures, but he realized there's a better way to make money. And so what, what's a hedge fund? A hedge fund basically takes in investor money. They take a, a small management fee. Like, if, like let's say you take in $100 million. Maybe you take a million or $2 million as a management fee, fee per year. And then the typical hedge fund takes 20% of profits. So if they make, if they return 10%, so 10 million, and you take 20% of profits, you make another 2 million. So you would make maybe three or 4 million altogether running a hedge fund. He decided much better were banks. So he so in the mid sixties, he started buying small regional banks. Now, what does a bank do? You, the investors basically give the bank money, but they only expect back their savings account interest. So like right now it'd be like less than 1% back then. I don't know what it was. And the bank essentially then lends out the investor money to other people who want to buy homes. And then the bank make so let's say they borrow from people at 1%, but they lend out at 6%. The bank makes a 5%, the 5% spread, the 5% difference. So he said, that's a much better business model because it's much more scalable than a hedge fund. You're not constantly trying to raise money and you don't have to sweat too much for the profits. You're just lending out to people who, who buy homes. And then he decided even better than banks is insurance companies. The best way to make money he felt, and he's correct, is insurance is owning an insurance company because then quote unquote investors give you money, but they never want the money back. Like when you give an insurance company money, like you personally, you never want that money back because it means you're sick or your car crashed or you died or whatever. And so, but, but still the insurance company gets to invest all the money and they hopefully never give any of the money back. And what typically happens is they break even, like they have to give some money back because people get into car crashes. So they they try. So Buffett's very good at managing how to make a profit on the insurance side. And then he makes an enormous profit on the investing side and he gets to keep 100% of the profits. Like he doesn't have to share any of the profits with the people who buy insurance. So that's why Berkshire Hathaway, ultimately, he knew this was going to happen when he switched from hedge funds to Berkshire Hathaway, he knew it was ultimately going to be an insurance company. Well, the the, the money, uh, I'm sure most of your listeners will know, but uh, the the premiums that he gets from the uh, customers, insurance customers, obviously that's called float, right? That, yeah. That's the money that is supposed to be held for future liabilities. And to your point is like the expectation is that if you can manage those by investing like very conservatively in like, you know, treasuries or uh, very, you know, you don't want, you want to make sure that the money's there for any future claims. But to your point, Buffett's such a great investor that not only was he getting to hold this uh, float uh, for quote unquote free, he was making, he's getting paid to hold it because he was investing so well with it. And uh, I guess everybody's been trying to recreate the model. And I think Buffett has called the fl uh, float like the eighth wonder of the world. <laughs> it's just whatever he's doing with it has built this empire. Um, and no, that, that's very fascinating, the, the transition and how much it uh, kind of changed his mindset. But I, I wanted to go back to something that you mentioned about Buffett not being afraid to go back into a position or buy, quote unquote, late. I think Apple's the best example of this, right? He was tech averse his entire career. He never invested in Microsoft, even though he was really good friends with uh, Bill Gates through the late 90s. He never invested in Amazon, Google, Facebook. He 
also didn't really regret not investing in like Amazon or Microsoft because he said he's never understood the business models and he wanted to be in his circle of competence, which him and Charlie Munger like to talk about. The Google one is interesting actually, and it goes back to your insurance point because he looked back and said, we missed on Google. And the reason we missed, even though it's a technology company, we knew their business model because Geico was spending $10 a click to uh, be on the first page of Google search uh, ranking. So he's like, if we're like, that was kind of like, he was one of the biggest customers, right? He's yeah. like, I, this is such a great business model. And he's like, that's one technology company that I actually do regret not investing in because the business model was just so simple. And, um, but back to Apple. Uh, so it doesn't invest in Apple till 2016. Uh, uh, Wexler, Ted Wexler, one of the two uh, portfolio managers he brought in, Todd Combs, Ted Wexler. Um, basically, they, he brought an investment case to Buffett that is in Buffett's wheelhouse. Apple has a monopoly. Its monopoly is around the App Store and the uh, uh, its operating system, right? And he's like, okay, I get this. And uh, and Apple realistically is a consumer product, and Buffett understands consumer, understands brand. So this all goes back to your original points. Like he's not afraid to go back into something quote unquote late, but when he does, he's oh, will also do it with a massive cannon. So. I yeah. am just fully convinced that his $32 billion Apple bet in 2016, which is now worth about $150 billion, it doesn't even include the dividends, is the greatest like public market tech bet ever, just on a pure dollar scale, right? He's made on paper $120 billion on Apple. Owns more than 5% of the company. And this is another thing he realized from Charlie Munger, and this was in the 1962 American Express bet. He's willing to go in super big. like Ameri Like a normal hedge fund, is going to have like a hundred positions and, you know, try not to have any position more than 1% of the portfolio. But American Express became like 30 or 40% or more of his portfolio at the time. Like he was taking a big risk. And in 1962, American Express seemed like on the verge of going out of business because of a, of a scandal that was happening. And so he, he, but he realized the brand would overcome the scandal. So he, he, he stayed in, but when he has high conviction now, I mean, he says, Imagine investing is like you have a, a punch card with 10 potential holes. And every time you make an investment, you have to click one of the holes. So you only have 10 investments you can make in your life. And that's how he sort of views it now and, and why he's willing to bet super huge. Well, so I just want to say something you said from the very beginning was, and there just aren't that many things he can do at that stage now, right? That's why actually a lot of his, if you look at the past decade, he's had a number of not great investments like precision cash parts. I think it was 30 billion. Uh, Kraft Heinz, I think he put in over 20 billion um, into that deal. Um, there's just not many <laughs> deals he can do now with a $150 billion cash pile, which is why Apple was just such an amazing, uh, like opportune time. It's like if you were to stick in the year 2016 and you had to put 30 billion somewhere and wanted to 4X, like you it had to be Fang, right? And then he basically had to pick the one that he understood the most. Yeah, and Apple was always interesting in that, unlike Google and some of these other companies, Apple always trade at, traded at a low multiple of earnings. So if a company makes like a dollar and it trades for twenty dollars, then it's trade it's considered a, it trades for twenty times earnings. So Apple always trades like let me see right now. I mean, even right now it trades for about twenty four times earnings, which is high for Apple. But uh, you know, so it's almost like. It's almost would be too expensive for app for for Buffett now, but but back then in 2016, I think it was trading for more like less than 10 times earnings. Right. 
less than S&P, I think, is because people are like, oh, the iPhone cycle is done. This is a hardware company. It has no software advantage. It's like yeah. all these kind of like bearish uh, uh, theses, which, you know, in hindsight, it's just so it's so, so wrong. It's like the brand of Apple is it's the greatest luxury product, uh, mass luxury product ever. I mean, even in 2010, I remember looking at Apple and this was, you know, shortly after Steve Jobs passed away, it was only trading for like five or six times earnings. It was trading for definitely less than 10 times earnings. And Apple was always relatively cheap uh, compared to other tech companies. So it makes sense that that was the one that Buffett bought because it has such a strong moat. Now, but you mentioned in your newsletter, you mentioned that you interviewed Stanley Drunkenmiller, who also thought Google was like the best company ever. And, and Drunkenmiller is, is famous as uh, one of Soros's top traders. And then he started his own hedge fund and became one of the biggest hedge funds in the world. Like, what was that? How did you get an interview with uh, Drunkenmiller? Oh, so that was uh, May 2021. I was uh, kind of profiling uh, a company, a fintech company he had invested in. Um, and uh, it's called Toggle AI. And they had kind of set me up with Stan uh, to... Uh, Discuss mostly just about his career, but also just why he made, kind of made that investment. But um, yeah, the Google. This I think this goes back to uh, Buffett's rationale for missing Google. Why he actually does kind of regret it is Stanley Druckenmiller is not like a super. Uh, you know, he he invests across all asset classes, and he's not like a tech focused guy. And famously, he lost like he invested six billion dollars, like hours away from the top of the dot-com bubble and lost yeah. three billion within weeks, right? So he's taken ma- huge losses uh, in tech. But yeah, I, I asked him about, hey, if you were to look at the FANG companies, this is May 2021 uh, uh, and Microsoft, like, which one do you think will hit five trillion first? And then he's like, listen, this is totally guessing. I'm, I'm not, uh, not going to prognosticate here, but if you had to put a gun to my head, I'd say uh, Amazon would be first. And then he said Microsoft would be second. He says, I don't actually believe in Apple's uh, ability to innovate uh, for the new economy. Um, and in the two-line uh, iPhone that he did not put them in the bucket. But he said, if Google was broken up and they weren't uh, bundling all these random moonshots they're taking uh, with uh, Google X, he's like, if that standalone business was uh, uh, the core search business was its own company. He's like, that could, that could be a wild card because he said, this is literally the greatest business model I'd ever seen. And um, and it's simple. It's such a simple business model. Uh, and that's why I think Buffett does regret missing that. Yeah, that's interesting. And, you know, uh, in the early OOs, he started to loosen up a little bit. Like, I know he, he lent Amazon a bunch of money and, and he got some stock for that. So he started to structure more deals with tech but and get more comfortable with it but you know what the classic buffett deal is now like buffett has such a strong name that he basically goes up to a company like he did this during the financial crisis a classic example but he did this for the past 30 years he has such a strong name he'll go up to a company like goldman sachs and say look i want to invest and goldman sachs might say okay well we trade on the stock market knock yourself out and buffett's like no 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 no. i want to invest with you like, I'm going to give you money directly. And they're like, oh, okay. Uh, well, I guess it's great to have Warren Buffett as an investor. So we'll take your money. Our stock's selling for whatever, $100 a share. And then Buffett's like, no, 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 no. I like your stock if it's $80 a share. So Goldman Sachs or whoever will say, okay, we'll sell you stock personally at $80 a share, even though it trades for $100. And, and that'll be a great deal. And Buffett's like, no, 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 no. I need a little bit more than that. I need a 9% dividend. And they'd be like, well, Warren, dividends are like 1% right now. How 
I want a 9% dividend and they'll give it to him. And that's the typical Warren Buffett deal now. Don't forget the Warrens either. He's like, and I also oh, want yeah, Warrens right. to buy yeah. shares at a 30% discount from the price that I choose. Yeah, right. Like also, yeah, also for free, I want the option to buy eat, double the stock at $50 a share. Well, that's how uh, he built his second biggest position is just Bank of America. Uh, same deal from the uh, financial crisis. I think yeah. he invested three to five, like is it three or five billion, got a 10% uh his preferred shares with a 10% dividend and then uh, warrants to buy whatever price. But so his initial, his cost basis on Bank of America is 14 billion. The position is now 35 billion. So absolute dull. I mean, just, just what a, he did the same with GE. So GE, Bank of America and, uh, and Goldman, he told uh, AIG to go kick rocks when he looked at their books. Same with Lehman's. Yeah, he's like, yeah. this is just all garbage. Um, but he's like, uh, to your point about the brand stuff, you mentioned the brand stuff. He's like, I think he said specifically like, this Goldman brand is, this is the best brand in finance. He's like, I get to buy this and I get to give all the terms that you mentioned. Like, of course I'm going to do it. Yeah, and his point was, look, if capitalism is falling apart, we have more things to worry about. But if capitalism doesn't fall apart, Goldman Sachs is going to survive. I yep. mean, Hank Paulson was the secretary of treasury at the time who was the ex-CEO of Goldman. <laughs> like, Goldman was not going to fall apart. It was this probably the safest investment he could have possibly made, even without all those things baked in. But then you bake in everything he did. Like he was, he was the top senior debt at that point as well. So he, he couldn't, unless Goldman Sachs did a Lehman Brothers, there was no way Warren Buffett could lose on that bet. Right. So you, you, what's important, I guess, interesting about this is we're basically transitioning from, and it all makes sense now, right? As I've talked to you about, is like in the sixties, a bit younger, managing uh, money for outsiders, uh, fr friends and family, kind of like you know, you're young, you're energetic, you're, you're happy to kind of do the trading in and out of these names asset base gets bigger uh, as you go into 70s, 80s, and also you're basically an insurance company at this point, is your investing strategy is going to have to obviously translate from less day trading uh, to more long-term buy and hold, massive high conviction bets. And uh, and then you get to your point where financial crisis rolls around. So Buffett's about 80 years old, uh, late 70s, and just his reputation is platinum. And now he gets the structure the deals however he wants. Like this, this arc that we just described, not very many investors are going to be able to pull that arc off. Right. And like it's all, and, and the entire arc is all about more ways to get risk out of the equation. So yes. the, the first method before he had any kind of name or even a lot of money is uh, buy things simply for less than they're worth. So like you said with Disney, I mean, the, the theme park alone was worth 80 million. The market cap of the company was worth 80 million. So it's as if you're getting all the uh, future revenues of these amazing movies for free. You're buying that all for free. So that was his total investment style for a long time. Then he throws in like, okay, well, it's not just the assets, but th there's some brand value too. So he, he factors that in. Then he starts thinking, look, I don't like this hedge fund structure because these investors could pull their money out anytime they want. And I only get 20% of the profits. I want 100% of the profits. So he moves to insurance companies where investors can't take, there's no investors. They can't take, the people can't take their money out after they pay insurance unless they get hit by a car or get sick or whatever. And he gets 100% of the profits. So that was another way to remove risk from the equation. And then, you know, it's it, it, as things become so big, he can't be nimble. He had to, most of the time, he had to structure these deals where it was just locked tight in his favor. And yep. it's amazing how he, how he gets sort of risk. And I, and I respect it. Like 
why should he invest in dot-com companies in the 90s or was too much risk? Or why should he invest right now in like Bitcoin or if there, he has so much cash, there's no makes no sense for him to buy Bitcoin because it's it's whether or not he understands it, it's a risk for him. Why take that risk? And uh, but you mentioned Drunken Miller though uh, uh, in your interview with him was what was his view on things like Bitcoin or Ethereum? Oh, he uh, <laughs> very negative. Uh, well, actually, no, he came around to Bitcoin uh, a little bit. So he was looking uh, in 2020. This is how he explained it. He said. I thought Bitcoin, interesting technology, but it was it was a solution in look uh, in looking for a problem. And then the government relief hits in around April 2020 in response to COVID. And I think we've printed seven or nine trillion dollars since uh, for COVID relief. And he's like, okay, he had come around to the theory uh, that Bitcoin is the hedge for uh, out of control monetary policy. And uh, he so got in, I think, at around twelve thousand. And then sold at 30 and just left the position. He said the reason he sold it just never had his heart in it. He was convinced to do it by Paul Tudor Jones, also a famous macro trader. And um, the, 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 so that was the first reason was he's like, okay, Bitcoin actually has a reason to exist now in his eyes. And then the second uh, reason he gave was Paul Tudor Jones had given him a pretty crazy stat. And the stat was in the end of 2017, when Bitcoin had the drawdown from 20,000 to three or 4,000 uh, in 2018, after that legendary run, 86% of wallets never sold. So he mm. looked at that. He's like, oh, so these people, uh, these, these, he called them zealots. They were willing to take 80% drawdowns. He's like, and because they believed in that asset so much. He's like, all right, there's definitely something here. But he ended up selling all of it and said uh, his heart was never in it. And uh, that, that was his take on Bitcoin. Looking for a rewarding, life-changing opportunity that enhances the lives of children in your community? Well, with almost 50 years of experience, Huntington Learning Center is the nation's leading K-12 tutoring and test prep franchise dedicated to shaping brighter futures for both students and franchisees. Huntington is the top revenue-producing supplemental education franchise in the U.S., and their proven system is the key to success for you and your students. The Huntington Advantage includes low startup cost, turnkey systems, dedicated support teams, national and local marketing support, and multiple revenue streams to help you build a life-enriching and profitable business. No education experience needed. In today's environment, the need for tutoring has never been greater. When you become part of Huntington Learning Center, you're filling an urgent need in the growing $5 billion supplemental education industry. To learn more, visit HuntingtonFranchise.com. Make a meaningful difference, pursue your dreams of business ownership, and be a positive force in your community. Don't wait. Visit HuntingtonFranchise.com today. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use Hims. 
HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use HIMS from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at HIMSS.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? HIMSS.com slash James. That's how, I, how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. HIMS.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See HIMS.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. It's interesting with Buffett, though. There's a book called Super Money by this guy who used a pseudonym. His name was Adam Smith. So it was written by Adam Smith, and the name comes from the guy who in 1776 wrote The Wealth of Nations, which kind of is a book describing what capitalism is. But anyway, this guy um, took the name Adam Smith, wrote a book called Super Money, and he describes uh, talking to Ben Graham. And this is in 1971. He describes talking to Ben Graham and Ben Graham says, look, I want you to meet this guy. He's a pretty good investor. Uh, he's kind of retired right now. And Adam Smith flies out to where this investor is. The investor meets him. Yeah, he has a beaten up car. They drive around town. Uh, the investor points out to this one furniture store. Oh, one day I'm going to buy that furniture store. And But he's like, I don't really know what to do with my life. I, I'm, I have about $20 million, shut down my hedge funds. And now I'm figuring out my the next stage of my life. And that investor was Warren Buffett. And he eventually, so it's great to see this book, Super Money, that was written and published at a time well before anyone knew who Warren Buffett was. And that furniture store was the Nebraska Furniture Mart. It's the biggest furniture store in the country. Buffett eventually did buy it. And I don't know if you know the story of this. He bought it from this like 98-year-old woman. Yes, the old, uh, it's one of his favorite stories to recall, right? It's like a handshake deal, basically. Yeah, and then she was unhappy with how, he was treating the business. So she quit, went across the street and started a competitor, which started beating out the furniture store. So when she was a hundred, Buffett bought that business from her and made her sign a non-compete. That's amazing. That I, 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 I totally missed the second part of that story. Yeah. So Buffett's got a lot of interesting stories and you could argue some of his things are not really like he's an old fashioned kind of investor too. Like he buys fruit of the loom underwear, he buys seeds candies. Like those are now small investments for him, but it's arguable whether they work as well as his current investments. But overall, I would recommend like there's various biographies of Buffett that are pretty good. One there's one by Roger Lowenstein, which I highly Snowball? recommend. Uh, no, not Snowball by Alice Schroeder. Uh, which is still good, but the one by Roger Lowenstein dives a little bit more into his investing. Although Alice Schroeder, who who covered uh, Buffett for for I think for Goldman Sachs for a long time, 
that snowball is very good as well. And he's just such an interesting investor. He really is the best investor ever. And, you know, there was another, there was another issue where he, um, is actually, uh, he got in trouble almost. He, there was another type of company that had a float the way insurance companies have float. So again, float is where people give you money and, and you get to hold on to it and you don't have to give that money back for maybe future forever. liabilities, right? The expectations yeah. are if there's liability be way in the future. So another type of company that has float is companies that sell coupons. So, cause like, oh, I buy, I'll buy $10 for, for coupons, but I may never use those coupons ever. So potentially the company could hold on to the money forever. And that, that's the float. And so there was a company called blue, uh, blue chip stamps, which sold coupons, I think for grocery stores and Buffett and Charlie Munger, uh, were buying up shares of this company and they even made, I think it was blue chip stamps. They made a deal with the owner that they would never buy the stock for less than a certain price because they wanted her to be treated fairly. And, and at some point the stock started trading lower, but they still kept paying the high price. And so the SEC was like, you're manipulating a penny stock here. And Buffett and Charlie Munger had to admit, yeah, we're manipulating a penny stock, but we're, cause we're paying more for, for our shares than it's cost. And so the SEC said, well, that's illegal, but we're just going to slap you on the wrist. It's no harm, no foul, but we, you admitted it and it's over. And so he, he even almost got into a little trouble with that one, but blue chip stamps eventually merged into Buffett's company. And also Charlie Munger's company, Wesco emerged into. So West Charlie Munger had his own Berkshire Hathaway for a long time which I don't know what ended up happening to that. I, I lost track of that story. Well, they, uh, he's had a I mean, couple, to your point, it hasn't just all been uh, free sailing, right? So he had the kind of the, the insider trading or, or, or SEC issue you mentioned. And then oh, with uh, uh, earlier, I mean, in the past decade, Lubrizol with uh, David Sokol, uh, oh, one I don't of his top one. lieutenants. Also, David, uh, David Sokol was one of the top lieutenants for Berkshire. I think he was on the operations side. And he basically uh, talked Buffett into uh, buying Lubrizol, which is an industrial uh, manufacturer or industrial parts seller. But basically, Sokol bought shares in Lubrizol and then told Buffett why he should buy it. So it was an insider trading scheme, essentially. It's like if Buffett's going to buy it, you know your shares are going to go up. Sokol left Berkshire and uh, there was an investigation into what Buffett knew and at what time he knew. He argued he had no idea. Um, other people are, are a little bit more skeptical. As in, you're, you're Buffett, you run Berkshire, right? It's like 12 people running at, at headquarters. So Lubrizol is a very interesting uh, case that happened in the past decade that's uh, probably worth looking more into for on the on the government governance side. Yeah, so, so all together, like in all your... Has, has looking into Buffett changed you as an investor? Oh, I, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'm a, I'm not a good investor. I'm awful. I, uh, I follow trends. Uh, I, I took a lot of L's during the pandemic. And, uh, and, uh, the one thing I will say that when you say changed is, um, it took a long time for me to come around. I mean, because stuff he says, isn't like you, you mentioned the 20, uh, punch hole card is like in your life, you basically should just make 20 investments, buy, hold where you can find good companies. I mean, that advice, the problem in the internet age or 2022 with social media, uh, Fin Twitter is it's very hard to have the conviction to buy and hold when the dopamine comes from going in and out of trades, right? Uh, like Buffett in the 60s. But the thing that kind of really blew my mind was if you ever pull up a chart 
over the past five years of Berkshire versus Facebook or Berkshire versus uh, Kathy Wood's ARC Investment Innovation Fund, those those uh, uh, Facebook and ARC just rode that wave, right? If you look at the charts, one's going up, 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 up. Berkshire just slow and steady, slow and steady. And then the post-pandemic crash happens and Berkshire, uh, the Facebook example is the best one. Berkshire ha- overtook Facebook's market cap even though for a while it was getting dominated by Facebook. And it's just a classic tale of the tortoise winning the race, right? It's just like, just, just, it, this is, they're slow and steady. They're, they've been called dinosaurs by everyone uh, uh, over the past two, three decades for not investing in tech. And they're buying old industry, uh, making large acquisitions in railways and in industries and just kind of chugging along. And then they caught Facebook. And that to me is like, oh, there it is. That's a lesson. So like, what I will say is that I do not day trade at all anymore. I just, what I'm holding, I'm holding and I'm just going to let those equities play out over the next five, 10 years. I don't even look at my portfolio anymore, which is pretty good for, well, good in the sense of like 2020 has been so bad that I don't have to look and be stressed out at how bad it's been. So I, know, I would say that's the it's lesson. It's very stressful like, if you look every day. Yeah. So I say the lesson is that it took me a long time to really internalize that, but that chart of Berkshire versus Facebook, it just... You, that's all you need to know. It's like, it's slow and steady. It's going to beat the flashy. So here's a strategy I actually did professionally because of Warren Buffett, which is that I did a statistical study. This is in the early to mid OOs. I did a statistical study of what happens if you buy every Warren Buffett stock after he buys it. So when he, let's say he buys Apple, then in the next quarterly filing, he has to file something called a 13F filing with the SEC, which displays all of his holdings. And you see what his new holdings are. And if you simply piggyback all his holdings, I think I looked at the prior 10 years from 2005, because I did this around 2005, 2006. If you look at the prior 10 years, if you simply bought every stock Buffett bought, but after he bought it, uh, you would get a, a 10% more per year than the S&P 500. So you, so in the S&P 500 in general returns 7% per year. So on average, you would return like 17% a year. And so I pitched this to a small bank and they gave me about 15 million, maybe a little more to invest with in, in 2006. And I started doing the strategy and it did very well. And then- That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. And so the, fir- so the first half of 2006, which was a good half, uh, I did much better than the S&P 500 because I was just in Buffett stocks. And I got paid a good amount of money. And then the second half, the market was falling apart a little bit. So of course, Buffett's stocks were going down as well. Maybe not as badly as the S&P, but they were going down. And this bank couldn't handle the volatility. So they said, it's okay, but just stop what you're doing. So I stopped doing it. It was no harm, no foul, but they didn't want to do the strategy anymore. But it was it is a strategy that has worked. And then and the way I would diversify it a little is not just use Warren Buffett, but use other long-term holders like Carl Icahn and there's there's others. Ackman, Pershing. I think you could just buy Pershing Square if you really wanted to. Yeah, uh, Ackman, Ackman is good. He had some issues with his hedge fund in in 2002, 2003. There was some a little bit of scandalous stuff, but more recently he's he's very, you know, on the up and up. Like he's a very good investor. And there's Dan Loeb, there's uh, Renaissance, there's Millennium. So there's a lot of good investors out there. But Buffett, of course, has always been the best. And then there's also 
uh, mini Berkshires. So there are some insurance companies that follow the exact same philosophy as Warren Buffett, but they're a little smaller, like White Mountain Insurance, and um, there's a whole bunch of them. But so, there, so if you follow the mini Berkshires, you could also get the same benefits. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love that idea, actually, because if, especially if you think about uh, if his if his thought is to buy and hold, so even if there's a three month lag, it's not like he's making a three month thesis, right? He's like he's making a multi year thesis. Um, I just wanted to mention one thing before uh, I, I, I don't want to miss it if we went for one wrap, but Buffett said his personal biggest mistake. So this is what he says: his busy, the biggest mistake is, and this he said this in the early nineties or mid-90s, so it might have changed since then, but he said Dexter Shoe Company was the biggest investment mistake he made because he used Berkshire stock to acquire the shoe company. Ah, uh, yeah, right. Time, yeah, at the time of the deal, it was $433 million, which is representative of 1.6% of Berkshire's market cap, which obviously, <laughs> if you're a shareholder, you're like, Ward, why did you use stock to do this deal? So that's what he says is his worst one. I wonder why he did use stock there for just a shoe company. Yeah, I wonder, that was right? a weird thing. So, and then, you know, I actually once wrote about another big mistake he had, but it was very, very early on, but I can't find it right now. It was somewhere in, in my book. Actually, while you're looking for that, I'll, I'll actually impart the last uh, uh, paragraph from my uh, newsletter uh, when I wrote uh, on Saturday for yeah. that post was uh, in reflecting on the Disney deal, he actually makes a great point. So he did say it was a huge mistake to sell in 1966. But he also said that he and, and Charlie Munger do not care if they sell and the stock goes up after. Like that doesn't bother them because all that says to them is that, okay, we bought this company because we thought it was a good business. It was a great business. And if it's running up after we sell it, for whatever we sold it, then our thesis that it was a great business is correct, right? And he's like, it's not like you can top, uh, you can call the top of every uh, uh, asset. And uh, to him, if you sell a company or a stock, and it continues to run, you shouldn't regret it. It's like if your thesis played out and you actually believe it was good business, then that's just another sign that your thesis was correct. You know, that's such a great point, actually. And that's a great point, not only for investors, but for entrepreneurs. Like there are companies I've started where I built them up and sold them. And then after I sold them, they kind of fell apart or the company that bought them fell apart. And then I wonder like, oh, was I just lucky? I was in the right place at the right time. I didn't know if I had had really made a good business. And there was another time I was invested in a company and for a long time, I wished I had invested more. And they, I, I invested at a $4 million valuation. They sold to salesforce.com for, for like almost 900 million uh, about five years later. But then salesforce.com, I believe, wrote the entire amount off. And again, I have to wonder, was I not a good investor because... It, ultimately the company didn't work out and it's good to know it's good for your conviction to know that these are still good companies even if you weren't even if you didn't ride it the full way i'd much rather i mean i was lucky that i did what i did but i don't like the fact that i had to rely on luck sure I, that, that makes a lot of sense like in your mind you'd be like i don't if that thing ran like 10x afterwards i'd be like in my mind i'd be like oh at least uh, you know i picked a, a winning horse because it was like like a, a, a merit and the business model yeah. So, well, once again, Trunk Fan, you know, how do you pick what you do for your Twitter threads? You do these great Twitter threads. This came out of a Twitter thread and, or, your, or a lot of your newsletter comes out of, I, I don't know, I read this on your newsletter, but I assume it came out of a, of a Twitter thread. How do you come up with your ideas for Twitter threads? You know, uh, I'll be honest is, uh, I'm like you, I just read a ton. I spend a lot of time reading, but something I've actually, uh, I've let uh, happen more for ideation is I'm kind of let the YouTube algorithm send me places. 
And I'll give you an example. I knew nothing about art history at all uh, up until a couple months ago. I just had zero interest in it. Um, but I came back from Spain. I saw Gaudi's architecture and I'm like, okay, let me start looking into some of this stuff. And I basically just Googled what I would, uh, what I YouTube search, what I would normally Google search. So instead of Google searching uh, Gaudi, uh, Sagrada Familia, Barcelona, I did that in YouTube. And the beauty about YouTube is there's so many creators now that are condensing 20, 30 hours of research into three to five minute videos. So I just let the algorithm take me. And now I've, I've, I've have all these interests that I'm writing about a number of threads about Van Gogh. Mona, why is the Mona Lisa so famous? Will you learn from the content of the YouTube videos or you take a bunch of videos or just one video? No, I'll, I'll let the algorithm keep feeding me uh, different ideas that they've decided are relevant and uh, are, are appealing to other people that like this one piece of content. So that thing about Gaudi sent me down a rabbit hole of Van Gogh, Picasso, uh, uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo. I'll send you just uh, through the DM some of these threads I've done recently. I think we should actually talk about a couple of them. Is, oh yeah, and, definitely. Uh, it all started from literally letting the YouTube algorithm take me. And I know people like to talk about how YouTube uh, makes uh, you know makes people quote unquote more extreme. There's actually a lot of research that says that's not true. But if you use it correctly, it is such a powerful ideation engine that uh, that's what I'm to answer your question. That's where currently. I'm letting content be fed to me. But, but what, would you, what would be the it. initial search? Like, would you search art history or? No, so, you know, any any search you would do for, uh, so Gaudi, for example, I literally was just in Barcelona and I just, for on Google, if I wanted to learn about Gaudi, I'd just write Gaudi Barcelona, right? I literally just do that in YouTube now. And they surface the most concise, most watched video of that of that class. And then they start feeding me related videos and that's how I'm learning about because I wouldn't even know where else to search I don't want to flip through a book I want to do it super quickly and get the visuals because art history is very specific it's not enough to just uh, to read about it you want to see the visuals and uh, YouTube is just perfect for that uh, that's brilliant I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to definitely try this <laughs> <laughs> yeah just start like uh, start start your Google searches on YouTube uh, 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 you'll be very surprised at what will happen like uh, content's just as good it's getting just as good in video format Excellent. Well, Trunk Van, once again, thank you so much. Buffett is obviously one of my favorite topics as an investor and as someone who, I mean, I've been so fascinated by him. I even wrote a book about him, the, the least read book about him ever. And uh, uh, thanks once again for for coming on the show a third time. I'm looking forward to time number four. We're going to talk about art history. Yeah, this is amazing. Thank you so much. This is a, this is a great time. Thanks, Trunk. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now, there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest internet, with faster speeds rolling out every day. And internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. So, while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement. While another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network, only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.